Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine, the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. The dramatic events in Afghanistan in recent days mark many things. The end of America's longest war, the end of the post-9-11 era, the return of the Taliban. They also constitute the first and perhaps defining foreign policy crisis for US President Joe Biden. To try to make sense of the US side of the momentous Afghanistan story, the critic's US editor, Oliver Wiseman, spoke to Jacob Heilbrunn, editor of the National Interest, a foreign policy journal, and Luke Thompson, a Republican strategist and advisor. They debate what Biden has got right, what he's got wrong, and how the American people will react, and where US foreign policy goes next. Jacob, when you look at the events of the last uh, week or so, that's the actual, on the, the footage from Kabul, um, Joe Biden's speech, um, the domestic reaction here in the US. Uh, is your abiding thought that this is a humiliating moment for America or a salutary moment or a bit of both or, or, or neither? Where do you kind of fall on, on what's happened? Humiliating and liberating. A messy divorce which the United States had to execute. It was clearly shoddily implemented by Biden, though it could have gone even worse under Trump. But Biden stuck to his guns, as it were, and executed a long overdue pullout. What wasn't surprising is that the United States pulled out, but that we remained in Afghanistan as long as we did. And Luke, let me put the same kind of choice to you about, about how, how, how you see the last, the last week or so. Well, I think Jacob's right to say that any characterization of this that isn't ambivalent is is foolish. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there are good reasons to be happy that we're we're no longer going to be in Afghanistan. There are good reasons to be frustrated that we're no longer going to have influence in the region that that keeping a small residual force in Afghanistan would afford us. Um, there are also, I, if there is one universal, I think it's it's horror at a lot of what we're seeing. You know the human cost of this is is very real and probably only just beginning. Um, I would quibble with one major um, decision or one major characterization here that I've heard from a lot of people, and, and this is not just Jacob. Is I think that we are underestimating the extent to which Biden has been um, at the at a hostage to events. Um, part of the reason this drawdown has been so half-assed and uh, messy is that. Uh, they had, by all appearances, made no preparations to seriously leave the country in the two weeks following the fall of Kabul, what, what would become the fall of Kabul. And I believe, in fact, that the decision by the Taliban to go on this massive offensive was in no small part motivated by the fact that Biden had already extended the deadline by five months once and seemed to be making limited preparations to leave by the September deadline that he had himself set and was very likely to extend. Um, you know, yes, we had left Bagram Air Base, which was a, an utterly stupid thing to do, and it was highly conspicuous. We just hauled off in the middle of the night and left the keys in the door, but which has you know been has made the evacuation a much greater challenge than it ought to have been. At the same time, um, you know, there are fifteen thousand Americans scattered all over Afghanistan. If we were serious about drawing down by September eleventh, which is what Biden had said those people would not be scattered all over Afghanistan. They would have been pulled back to Kabul ahead of time or to Bagram Air Base had it been a well-managed thing. So to my mind, I think it's very likely that Biden did not intend to go through with the September deadline and is the White House is insisting that we had had planned this all along 
precisely because they are hostage to events. The Taliban, seeing a lack of resolve and at the same time seeing a lack of progress, struck, struck decisively, um, executed a, a coordinated attack, recognizing that the American system of fighting in, in or of support for the, the Afghan National Defense Forces had been withdrawn, specifically close air support, logistics, technical support, et cetera. And, and they, they acted boldly and decisively. And unlike the Tet Offensive, which was ultimately a strategic failure in this same vein, they were successful. Mm-hmm. But was it actually a massive offensive, to use your words? Or did the Afghan government and military simply abdicate. My understanding is that the Taliban waltzed into Kabul. They didn't fight their way. This was no seizure of power. Well, it, it, the actual fall of Kabul itself is, is presaged by a week of sort of Blitzkrieg-style assaults on provincial capitals all across the country from Mazari sharif in the north all the way down to the south. And, and the, the fact is, is that by the time Kabul falls, it's, it's already a done deal because all of the overland routes out of the country, the trade routes to Pakistan have been seized, and all of the major commercial centers from Kandahar on have been seized. And, and that's where the lightning strike of Taliban, uh, of Taliban aggressiveness took place, such that the actual fall of Kabul has become an afterthought. Now, that is also why the Taliban is willing to show discretion right now, has not killed Americans. They're even holding back on their retaliatory um, murders. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of murder of, of Afghan uh, national special forces and others, um, but it's nothing compared to what we might have thought for now. But that's at the mercy of the Taliban because they see it as strategically useful to just get most of the international community out of the country, consolidate power, and frankly, be the first genuinely national sovereign government in Afghanistan since the collapse of the Soviet-backed communist regime. Um, I just want to go back to, to, to Biden's speech, sort of fold in Biden's speech from earlier in the week uh, into this. I mean, uh, Jacob, he, he clearly is making a bet that basically the American people will think and allies and so, so on will think, you know, retreats are messy and it was this or it was never leaving. And, you know, the people are on his side on leaving. And so the, de- the details of, 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 you know, the, the kind of the grim details of, of the departure will, will, ultimately, will ultimately fade um, in terms of how he's perceived as a president. Do you think that's, do you think that's a good bet? Do you think he's right to make that bet? I mean, is that, and do you think that's how he sees it? I don't even think it's a gamble. My surmise is that in a week or two, this will have faded from the headlines. Biden's speech for me was a new address to the silent majority, to use the old Nixon phrase. He was essentially saying to the Midwest and to where a lot of these soldiers come from, no more, enough is enough, I'm on your side, Everyone else has failed you. We're not, we're not going back into this morass. He, he said, I'm not going to sacrifice one more American soldier. And I don't have the impression that the American public will be particularly uh, roused by, this, by, by our exit. I think they'll approve it. And for better or for worse... Afghanistan will once more be largely abandoned as 
the as it was at the end of the Cold War. But but is there there is there a difference, uh, Luke, between um, you know between the rights and wrongs of, of ending the war and you know Americans seeing a president that and his and his press spokesperson and and, and uh, national security advisor and so on basically saying you know to Americans stuck in a country now run by the Taliban like we cannot we cannot vouch for your safety uh, kind of you're on your own I mean that is something that it's not clear to me will go down very well um, with people that are you know most people who are you know do want the war to end nonetheless don't want you know these sorts of things to be happening well, well, right. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but this is what being hostage to events is defined by, right? At the time mm -hmm. of this recording, Americans have not been killed. That may not be true in two hours, right? Mm -hmm. No, it, 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 The logic, no more soldiers dying in Afghanistan goes out the window if we wind up with American soldiers killed and dragged through the streets of Kabul, which is very, very possible right now. If we wind up with Americans killed and hung from a bridge as they were in Fallujah in Iraq, very, very possible. So the, the, the extent to which if every American gets out of Afghanistan alive, then Joe Biden will probably be fine, although his claim to be the adults returning to power, to being competent, to being prepared, to knowing how things work has, is dead. I mean, I, I don't think he will ever be seen as anything other than somewhat of an absentee um, you know, mismanager. Uh, that may not matter, right? I mean, Biden's appeal has never been his either intellectual or policy acumen. It's always been this American tick to conflate basic human emotion with moral virtue and the fact that he's, you know, expresses grief publicly, convinces people he's a good man, even though there's really not much evidence that he is. And so, you know, it may not matter electorally in terms of a Joe Biden running for re-election in 2024, but Again, Joe Biden is not dictating what happens in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. He didn't dictate the fall of the country. He is not dictating whether Americans stay alive or not. The Taliban is. And if I were an American president, I would be very, very uncomfortable with my political fortunes depending on the Taliban and their, and their kindness. Yeah. Isn't one of the interesting things about this, though, that on the one hand, the last week has shown a level of executive incompetence in terms of the planning and so on. But on the other, it actually has... I, I think, and I don't know what you think, Jacob, has suggested the opposite about Biden in the sense that he's not just a, 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 a you know, a, a Kabul cutout, doddering old old guy who who's the, the establishment's kind of guy in, in the Oval Office. You know, this, he was extremely, um, you know, he has really stuck to his guns and and, and set a, a, the course of his own. That, that speech he gave, whether you loved it or hated it, was a very, very unusual speech for a US president to give. Um, and so it suggests that it suggests the president that that has strong opinions on these things and is and is making decisions according to those opinions. Uh, yes, the the line that he was sleepy Joe has been decisively refuted, I think, by the animated performance that we saw. Biden is, in fact, quite ruthless. Mm -hmm. He was as a politician and now as president. I don't think that Barack Obama would have displayed the kind of decisiveness that Biden did in his speech. I mean, he didn't, he didn't flinch. He doubled down on the exit. And it's true that having Americans strung up in Kabul would, would be a PR disaster for Biden. But I still think we ought to be careful here because 
American presidents have had foreign policy disasters and recovered. Reagan with Iran-Contra, Kennedy with the Bay of Pigs. It just goes, I mean, the one who really got hammered, of course, was Carter in 1979, but he didn't have any chance. He, there was no time for him to recover, and it, it was sort of the coup de grace. I mean, I'd, I'd also point out that Kennedy didn't run for re-election because he was assassinated and Iran Contra was in Reagan's second term. So it's not it's not right. clear to me that those I, I don't know that those are those prove the point. Well, I but their reputations did have recovered. I mean, there there are going there have been previous foreign policy disasters and they have not wiped out the reputation. Ford, I don't think, suffered from the exit from Saigon. Um, it wasn't an issue in the 76 campaign. So, I, but I am glad Sorry, to see God, that you think good. Biden is going to run for a second term. Oh yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, I definitely think he is. I look, I, I would say, I don't, I don't read Biden as resolved. I will say that he has never shown himself to have an expansive conscience when it comes to matters abroad. Um, and that's fine. You know, that, that is what, what and who the American people voted for, um, you know, well, that is interesting, though, because he has touted this democracy crusade. Right. Well, yeah, there, I, mean, I, there I think he, he could be vulnerable. Let's, let's, um, um, with his demo- is he still going to go through with the democracy summit? I, who knows, right? I mean, given that he hasn't been calling world leaders, I think it's highly unlikely that they'll be doing a whole lot of summiting. Here's, here's what I would point out. I think that Biden's team is doing a good job making themselves look hard and look decisive. Um, Joe Biden couldn't refuse, couldn't send forces back in to secure. Now, we do have many thousands more soldiers going back into Afghanistan right now than we did two weeks ago because of the bungling. But Biden's negotiating position with 15,000 Americans behind a, a, a Taliban lines is, thank you, sir, may I have another. So yes, he can go out in front of the American people and say, I don't care. I'm being decisive. I'm being ruthless. That's great. You don't have a choice, Joe. You don't have a choice. You have no options because you failed to prepare and you put yourself in a position where the Taliban dictates your political priorities to you because they have 15,000 hostages if they want them. And that's the truth. So yes, his team is spinning highly effectively, but we make a mistake to conflate that with his choices. He has not made a choice here. And again, all of the evidence before the blitz on Kabul suggests, and the provincial capitals, suggests that Biden was not serious about meeting his withdrawal deadline. If he were, we wouldn't be seeing the disaster unfolding before us from a lack of preparation to withdraw. Let's, let's but, put, you guys, you guys mentioned the, um, the democracy agenda, which may, be, which may be dead now, but let's talk about how this affects um, you know, the other, other foreign policy priorities of the, um, of the administration. One of the kind of, let's say, hawkish or more neocon, I guess, um, critiques of Biden in recent days has been that how are, you know, how are allies supposed to trust um, America now? How, how, how does Taiwan know uh, it's safe? How, does, uh, how, how do um, Europeans know they can be trusted? They, they can trust the U.S. on, on all sorts of different things. Um, do you, uh, Jacob, do you, do you think that's a fair criticism? I do not. I think the credibility argument has no credibility for one reason. Biden will be per, under intense pressure to uh, demonstrate American bona fides, uh, whether it's South Korea, Taiwan, the Baltic states, Ukraine. He simply could not afford 
another debacle on his watch. His, then his presidency truly would be destroyed. So I think that Biden is more likely to double down in support of allies than to abandon them. And I think the Russians and Chinese probably are making that same calculation. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And, and it worries me. Um, I, I think that it's, the question is, does this inspire political actors in these vulnerable allies to pull a, a Shakashvili and try to create facts on the ground? You know, people forget that, that you know, Mikhail Shakashvili started the confrontation with Russia to try to bring America into the Georgian conflict on his side. And George W. Bush told him to pound sand. Um, thankfully, uh, I, I think that there is a risk that um, people in Taiwan, people in the Baltics, people in Ukraine should, uh, will, will attempt to create facts on the ground to solidify American support. Now, having said that, I think these countries are not all the same. I think our commitments, whatever they are on paper, are politically not all the same. Um, the United States is much more committed to Seoul than it is to Tallinn, and in my view, rightly so. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean, you know, we get a say, our adversaries get a say, but the proxies of both us and our adversaries also get a say, however attenuated. And that's where I think the danger exists from this. It's not a credibility issue. It's, it's, it's an uncertainty issue. There's, there is now informational ambiguity out there, and there may be people who feel that their interests are advanced by striking under conditions of, of uncertainty to clarify where they are. And what do you what do you guys think explains? I mean, just to zoom in a bit on on Biden in the last week or so, you know. Did you intend that pun? <laughs> but what explains the some some specifics, um, like not calling any allies for days, like staying in Camp David, um, like releasing that? I mean, this is just a PR point, but releasing that moronic photo of him on his own and in, in, at that conference table. You know, is this a deliberate, is, is this bad, is this bad, bad politics? Or is this a deliberate point being made here that we are not, uh, we, you know, we are washing our hands of this and we are not entertaining um, the idea that we're going to get dragged back into anything? I, mean, I, I, I thought, oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry, yeah, oh. Jacob. Uh, I was just going to say, I thought he, that he flubbed up by remaining in Camp David, immured there. Mm -hmm. That, to me, looked like he was out of touch. Mm -hmm. uh, Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I, think the, I think they've boxed themselves in from a communication standpoint. Um, and, and again, let's look at the facts on the ground. There will be three to four times as many American forces in Afghanistan on September 11th, probably, given the way things are moving right now, than there were, going, than there were on July 11th, right? That yep. is the exact opposite of what Joe Biden wants, right? He doesn't mm -hmm. want to send more troops to Afghanistan. The whole point was to get out, not to have a, you know armed camp or Dien Bien Phu at the Kabul air, airport. Um, so the... I think that I suspect it's Ron Klain. I don't really know, but I think I think it's Ron Klain is saying we cannot admit we've made any mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right? We have to own this. This was what we were will we were willing to accept this because we're that committed to getting out of the country. That's the communications position we're taking. And so, to some extent, they're like Kevin Bacon at the end of of Animal House, calling out "All is well, all is well," and waving their hands back and forth. Right? <laughs> um, and and it and it's not convincing anyone. 
I think a more able and a more politically savvy approach would have been to say, okay, somebody screwed up. We need to chop somebody's head off. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Zalmay Khalilzad is a very politically uh, vulnerable person. They can blame a lot of this on Zal and shove him out the door. If, if Biden were genuinely uh, interested in having a well-functioning White House, then I think Jake Sullivan would have been fired because the job of the National Security Advisor is to collate information and make sure that the president has pertinent information. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he failed to do that, and he failed catastrophically to do that. But I think the Biden team, is, is it, their first priority is to admit no mistakes. And, uh, you know, as a result, there will be no serious accountability until they do some, you know, frankly, bullshit Blue Ribbon Commission internal investigation mm-hmm. uh, six months from now. Now, if Congress, if, if Congress switches to the Republicans, then I think that this will become a focal point for investigations, and that will be persistently embarrassing to the Biden yep. administration. So they're, they're just thinking two hours ahead, 12 hours ahead. They're not taking a long-term view. They don't have a strategic communications plan here. And they're, they're you know, they're hurting themselves over the long term to win very ephemeral short-term communications victories. Do you think also that there's a, uh, there's a, um, in terms of, you know, we talked about Biden being kind of hostage to, to events in many ways, but obviously the biggest way in which that's the case is on the possibility of Afghanistan becoming again, a, a base for Islamist terror uh, attacks um, on, on, you know, either America or its, ally, or, or its allies. I mean, that would be, that would be, a successful attack like that would obviously be the, the worst case scenario for, um, for Biden. Um, in his speech, though, you know, he was clear that, that, that there is a role still for kind of counter-terrorist um, U.S. activity in Afghanistan. And, and I don't think enough people realize that. And that, or at least have, have thought through the consequence of that, which is that there are ongoing decisions to be made about these things in Afghanistan for Biden, right? So, you know, do you think the I guess my question is, do you think that's going to be something that, you know, has he kind of oversold the, the way in which American, America is leaving Afghanistan? And then, you know, in a year's time, there's a drone strike on somewhere in Afghanistan and people are sort of, in America are sort of scratching their heads a little bit about, about, what, the, about what the Biden administration is actually up to. Luke, why don't, why don't you Yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly possible. I think to some extent uh, that's, that's more rhetorical window dressing because I don't know where that drone would be launched from. Right. Um, yes, there's a vulnerability. I, I question whether the whether the Taliban is going to provide a safe haven for international terrorist groups. Um, I think they have much more uh, lucrative and lower hanging fruit, uh, both in the form of literal fruit and poppies, um, and and uh, you know the international heroin trade, and mm-hmm. also creating trouble for Pakistan and uh, Iran on their northern and eastern borders, respectively. Um, you know, let's be honest, the last 20 years have not been great for the Taliban uh, compared to the 20 before them. And so there are good reasons for them to consolidate power slowly, tighten the noose around the civil society and impose their vision of Sharia law. Mm -hmm. And rather than in the past participate in sort of Pakistan's wildly reckless proxy state conflict, um, uh, as a basing operation for that. Now they may be able to say no, Pakistan. And in fact, instead, we're going to create trouble for you. Jacob, what, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sold that the Taliban will be able to even consolidate power effectively. They, let's see what happens. Uh, I mean, obviously, this, the situation is, is murky. 
Uh, the other aspect of it is that the United States has in a way flipped the script, which is that the Chinese and the Russians, and to some degree the Iranians, maybe not quaking, but they're certainly quite concerned about the possibility of, of Afghanistan serving as, as terrorism central. Mm -hmm. uh, to what degree the, the Taliban will even be able to control the various actors that want to operate from Afghanistan is questionable. Uh, I do think the United States is not leaving Afghanistan. One way or another, we will be involved in, in deterring and attacking any terrorists in that area. It's not over. Mm -hmm. It's just moved into a different phase. Well, on the, um, just a last question, I guess, um, to, to return to US politics briefly. Um, it's interesting to see the kind of party realignment on foreign policy and what, and what happens next. So obviously Trump, um, you know, uh, successfully um, um, campaigned on a, on a limited foreign policy and, and, and very much repudiated the sort of neocon wing of, of, of his party. Um, Biden is sort of doing something similar, I guess, in, in the Democratic Party. And I just wonder in the way in which, you know, partisanship drives so much in US politics, what you think Biden's kind of very clear line on, on Afghanistan will do to re Republican foreign policy kind of thinking and, and, and talking points. You know, I, so a lot's been made of this page being taken off the Republic, uh, Republican website, uh, you know, talking about um, Trump's support for withdrawing from Afghanistan. And I wondered whether, you know, on the right in America, does this mean a kind of resurgence of a more um, confident, more expansive kind of foreign policy crowd? Well, there's no question that among traditional Republican conservatives like Kevin McCarthy or Liz Cheney, even though they've had, the, they've had these enormous disputes over Trump, they reacted violently against the Trump America first foreign policy. They never, they never adopted it. Mm -hmm. And there was always a revulsion in the, Demo in the Republican Party among a certain sector at his uh, antipathy towards NATO, his sucking up to Putin, uh, you know, so will there be a re-realignment? Right. Will the Republican Party revert to its traditional hawkishness? Uh, I think the jury is out there because the Trump base still remains firmly nationalistic. So that, that story saga is not over among the Republicans. For the Democrats, there's also the question of, is Biden effectively burying liberal internationalism? in Afghanistan. I mean, Biden sounds like uh, George H.W. Bush reincarnated or even more hardline as, as a realist, mm -hmm. maybe like a Brent Scowcroft. He's up there talking about national interests and how he's not gonna squander American lives. This, this is unusual language for a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I probably agree with half of that. Um, I mean, I, I would say that a friend of mine characterized Donald Trump's foreign policy as talking like Rand and governing like Tom Cotton. Um, and I think there's, there's some truth in that. Um, in many respects, the actual practice of Donald Trump's foreign policy doesn't look that different from 
what George W. Bush ran on in, in you know, 1999 and 2000. And I see the kind of neocon internationalist interventionism of the, of the Bush years as uh, more the exception than the, in, than the norm to, in, in Republican politics. And so Jacob was right to point, I think, to you know, the mid-American base of the Republican Party. I think he's also right to point to Biden using language that we don't hear from most uh, Democratic politicians having said that, I do not think that the, uh, first of all, as Biden's immigration policy has shown, uh, he is not a vanguard defender of American sovereignty. Um, as his willingness to authorize Nord Stream 2 and other things uh, has shown, he is not a, a, a kind of neo-Jacksonian, to borrow that Walter Russell Mead term, which I don't really like, but I think serves our purposes for this discussion. Um, the, the biggest difference between Trump and Biden is that Trump quite explicitly intentionally projected strength through his foreign policy, mm -hmm. even as he sought to disentangle American obligations. Biden has done nothing to project strength. And disentanglement itself is insufficient, I would say. Um, let's leave it on that very emphatic note from you, Luke. So, um, <laughs> so Luke and Jacob, thank you very much. Um, um, yeah, speak again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thanks. it. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe today? Right now we're offering five issues for just £10. Go to thecritic.co.uk and click subscribe.